I learned a new word this week and I want to uh, add it to your vocabulary if you don't already know it. It's uh, viticulture. It just shows how uncultured I am that I'm just learning this word for those of you who already knew it. According to Washington State University Viticulturists Program, viticulture is the study of, the cultivation of, the protection of, and the harvesting of grapes. There's a whole department at universities all over the world, especially in the most luscious grape growing climates of our world all over Italy, all over the western seaboard of the United States. There's viticulture programs in universities, there are viticulturists, and they seek to do the following. People devote their whole life to doing this better. Grape vines to eliminate dead, broken, and diseased wood from said vines to eliminate older, non-productive wood from said vines to encourage the development of new wood on vines for the best future crops, even looking multiple years in advance. Opening the canopy of grape vines to sunlight and to more airflow and to keep vines within their, their desired limits. People devote their whole life to studying how to do that well. I got hooked watching some pruning videos this week and I knew zero, so I learned a lot. I learned a ton. First, I learned that there are two main strategies for pruning grapevines. There is what's known as cane pruning and spur pruning. I'll show you a slide. This is spur pruning. All right, let's go back and look at them one at a time. There's cane. Get your vine, it's on its trellis. You're pulling down one of the vines, you're attaching it to the trellis, and you're lopping everything off. <laughs> All right, that's cane, there you go. And spur. Pretty similar, except instead of pulling a vine down, you're letting the main vine run, and you're lopping off with a little bit of leftovers what was the previous year's vine. Thanks, brother. <laughs> The reason I'm showing you that is because if you watch the videos and not just look at a one picture slide, you will find that it looks to novices like me that the viticulturist is whacking the thing to death. They are taking everything that looks like good growth and totally lopping it off. But the goal in your cane pruning and the goal in your spur pruning is exactly the same. The strategies for how to get there are a little bit different, but the end goal is exactly the same. That is namely an abundance of annual good fruit. When Jesus is talking in John 15, and uses a metaphor of the vine and the branches, he means to teach us something essential about true Christianity. Non-negotiable. This is Christianity in its essence. Today we'll look at verses 1 to 11, and there Jesus gives that beautiful metaphor of the vine and the branches. In verses 1 to 8, he explains the metaphor Verses 9 and following, we'll take the first part of his explanation today through verse 11, the remainder, Lord willing, next week. I invite you to John 15, verse 1, to hear the voice of the God who made you tell you through his Son what he wants in your life. John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, 
and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. To the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Father, I confess and we confess that we are sorry for all the non-abiding in Jesus parts of our life. We brought a lot of that here today. Father, we're also sorry and repent from all the fruit stapling we've tried to do in our life, trying to produce on our own or appear in our own strength that we have what only Christ can produce. Father, we confess that we so often drift away somewhere other than Him. And we ask You, Lord, that You would forgive us. And we ask You, Lord, that You would graft us deep, deep into Jesus. That our whole life Our whole life, Lord, would be one protracted display of what you do in the lives of those who find their sufficiency in your Son. The supper that he prepared Judas has left the group he's gone now there are 11 remaining with the Lord Judas has gone to fulfill his satanic plan Jesus and his disciples I understand the end of 14 to mean have just left the upper room I take that to mean that when Jesus is speaking the words of John 15, he's walking with 11 of his disciples through the streets of Jerusalem. It is, as I said, nighttime, and he uses this moment to instruct his faithful followers to live in his love as he knows he's about to depart from this world. And instead of just going exactly sequentially through the verses, verse 1 down to verse 11. I rather want to deal with this passage with you today through the three characters or groups that are emphasized in it, collecting the verses under those individuals or, or, or groups. The first 11 verses I've organized under those, those three Areas, Jesus and his Father, those who do not abide in Jesus, and those who do abide in Jesus. Those are the groups or the people, the individuals you find in the first 11 verses. So, first, the truth about Jesus, but more specifically, 
First, the truth about the all-sufficiency of Jesus and of His Father's determination to prove the all-sufficiency of Jesus. Our first look is the most important. It is the glory of the Son and of the Father who sent Him. This is in verse 1 and verse 5. Again, the truth about the all-sufficiency of Jesus and of His Father's determination to prove it. I get that from verse 1 and verse 5 where Jesus says these familiar words. Verse 1, I am the true vine. Verse 5, I am the vine. Verse 1, my Father is the vine dresser. When I say the all-sufficiency of Jesus, what I mean is dictionary definition, Merriam-Webster sufficiency. That is the condition or quality of being adequate or enough to be plenty, to be ample, to have an abundance. Jesus is all sufficient. He is enough. That's what I mean by our first point, the all sufficiency of Jesus. I believe that's what Jesus meant by his seventh and final I am statement in the Gospel of John that I just read for you in verse 1 and verse 5. I am the true vine. I am the vine. This is Jesus' final I am in John's Gospel. The Gospel of John is organized around the I am statements and the seven signs. Seven sayings and seven signs of Jesus. This is the final I am. Jesus has told us, ego I me. That's the, the Greek. I myself am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door of the sheep, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and here, seventh and finally, and significantly, I am the true vine. Now, none of those are just random proverbs. Jesus isn't just throwing out random smatterings of truth statements. Every one of them is said in a context. For example, John 8, when Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, where is He standing? What's going on? He's standing in the court of the women at the great feast. There are torches lighting the whole portico and Jesus is feeling the heat of those flames under the light of those flames and He says in that moment, I'm the light of the whole world. Similarly, with all of the I am statements, there's context. He says, outside of the tomb of Lazarus, as his sibling is weeping, I'm the resurrection and the life. Every one of these statements are not, again, random smatterings of Proverbs. They're deeply significant and said in crucial moments, why and what is the context of I am the true vine? I mentioned this is the final, the seventh I am statement of Jesus in John's gospel before I give you the context of when he said it, what the disciples were probably looking at when, while he said it. I mentioned this is an I am. Just to make sure we're all on the same page, what we mean is Jesus is no doubt about it declaring deity for himself. Many of you know this, perhaps you've not seen the connection before, so just again to make sure you understand that Jesus is saying, I am God. He is using the grammatical structure of the way God introduced himself to Moses in Exodus 3, especially verse 13, I am that I am. So when Jesus said this, everybody understood that he was claiming deity. I am God. The context is so significant. When Jesus said in verse 1, I'm the true vine, and in verse uh, 5, I am the vine, he was cueing his listeners to remember what God had spoken of his people in the Old Testament. It was a common metaphor, imagery for the Father to speak of His people Israel in the Old Testament as His vine. And that anybody who would ever be blessed of God 
would be blessed only insofar as they are connected to Israel and to her God. For example, in Isaiah 5, the most significant vine passage in the Old Testament concerning Israel, God says, let me sing now for my well-beloved a song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug all around it, removed its stones, and planted it with choicest wine. He built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? God speaks of Israel as his vine. Again, and maybe rivaling for the most significant Old Testament passage where God speaks of Israel as his vine is Psalm 80, where we read in verses 8 and 9, you removed a vine from Egypt. That's Israel being saved through the Red Sea. You drove out the nations and planted it. That's Israel taking the promised land. You cleared the ground before it and it took deep root and filled the land. He refers to his people as his vine. Many other times Israel is spoken of in the Old Testament as God's vine. Jeremiah 2 and Jeremiah 12, Ezekiel 15 and 17 and 19, Hosea chapter 10, we could go on. So when Jesus says, I'm the true vine. We're finding something so significant in Jesus' self-understanding that if we miss it, we miss the whole point of what Christianity is. Every Old Testament passage where Israel is spoken of as the vine, we find some common denominator, namely Israel's failure to obey God and be a blessing to the nations. Not one time does God refer to Israel as a vine without also rebuking her for her failure. In John 15, Messiah comes. The night before he's crucified and says, I'm the true vine. I believe Jesus is declaring two magnificent truths in this statement. He is the true Israel and he is God's faithful son. To say he's the true vine is to say he is the fulfillment of all that God commanded Israel ever to be. They abandoned God in the wilderness for 40 years. They grumbled and complained against God who every single day provided for them water and food and led them with a pillar of fire and cloud and gave them the tabernacle and the commandments and the tent of meeting and on and on and on we could go. And for 40 years, they grumbled against him and complained against him. And then Jesus emerges on the scene and in a wilderness for 40 days without food and without water, with no complaining, with no grumbling, perfectly honors his father and keeps his commands. Israel is supposed to be the true vine, but Jesus is God's true Israel. He is his faithful vine, producing fruit and bringing to God all who graft themselves into him. But I said, it's also a picture, I believe, that, is, that Jesus is God's faithful son. I get that from many places in the Old Testament. Let me give you one example so as not to give you sensory overload. Exodus 4, God says to Moses, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn, which is precisely what God did. But do you hear God refers to Israel in this passage, not as his vine, but as his son. And when when Jesus says, I am the true vine, I believe he's declaring he's the true Israel, the faithful, obedient subject to the Father and the faithful Son. So what we're seeing in John 15 is essentially Jesus saying, I am the solitary source of all divine blessing. 
if you are not connected to me, you may have spiritual jargon coming out of your mouth all the time. You may talk about God and God's blessing and God, 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 God. But if you are not connected to Jesus, you have zero of the blessing of God. Only in Christ, Israel gives you nothing in regard to salvation. Jesus is the true vine. He's the source of all divine blessing. If you don't have Christ, you have, according to Ephesians 1, zero spiritual blessing. So Jesus is the vine, the I am. He is God. He is the source of all of God's blessings to mankind. But before we move to our second consideration, under point one, not only do we read of Jesus declaring his divinity and that he's the solitary source of divine blessing, the faithful Israel, the faithful son, but he also says something of his father. My father is the vine dresser. It's most important that we understand who God is and then why it's significant that those who are not attached to him get his curse and those who are engrafted into Christ have all of his blessing. So what does this mean? My father is the vine dresser. This is verse one. My father is the vine dresser. And then he tells us what the father does in verse two. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he does two things. He takes that one away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So the father does two things according to the son. He cuts off the dead and he prunes the living. Notice this. The cutting off of the dead branch. Why? Well, back to my viticulturist uh, course I took this week. It's because those non-producing branches, that dead weight, is hindering life from flowing in great profit to the branches that are alive and fruit producing. So what does the father do? He lops them off. He takes away the fruitless branches. If you would have looked at some of the videos that I saw this week of the, the, the pruning of the healthy vine, you would think they're, like I mentioned earlier, killing the whole thing. They're taking huge armfuls of branches and literally just throwing them away and they look like they were the good. But he's not only cutting off the dead, Jesus says that the Father is also pruning the living. This too was in my uh, little crash course this week, seeing, seeing branches that were not dead, but were not fruit producing. They were being cut off. Why? Jesus tells us more fruit. Verse 2, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. He takes away the non-fruit producing so that the fruit producing can produce more fruit. God knows how to chase our hearts. He's not talking about dead branches here. He's talking about the living branches here. This is a Hebrews 12 moment where the father is disciplining those he loves and he's doing it for our good. Why? So that we may share in his holiness. He wants more fruit in our life. So there are two options for all branches, living or dead. Everybody gets cut by the Father. He cuts off the dead and he prunes the living. Why does he prune the living? Again, verse 2 for fruit. Verse 2 for more fruit. Verse 5 for much fruit. Some branches are cut off and laid aside. Other branches are pruned. But the Father leaves no branch untouched. So Jesus is the vine, his father's the vine dresser. We get just a little bit of a look at our second point. That is not only the truth about the all-sufficiency of Jesus, number one, but two, the truth about all those who have no need for the all-sufficiency of Jesus, or presume they have no need. They don't feel their need. They don't see their need for Jesus. Therefore, they're not grafted into him. I said we get just a little look. The only look we really get is in verse 2 and verse 6. I've mentioned verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. But look at verse 6 as well. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. I believe Jesus is capturing the life of all lost people. 
That's why I said the truth about those who have no need for the all-sufficiency of Jesus. They live under the delusion of presuming that Jesus is not essential. That's where I started. This is essential Christianity 101. If Jesus is not essential for your life, for all of your life, then you're not grafted into Christ. Specifically, I believe Jesus has Judas in mind here. Remember, Judas pardon me, had just left the group minutes prior to this conversation. The disciples are still trying to process, what's going on? Did he go to buy some more stuff with the money bag? For what's, what's happening here? Jesus knows exactly what's happening. The disciples had heard that one among them would betray him, and Jesus had dipped the morsel and given it to Judas, and Judas left under the, the command of Christ, do it, do it quickly. The disciples are trying to process everything that's happening and all that Jesus is telling them, and I believe in verse 2, Jesus has the Judases of the world in mind. MacArthur said he's talking about the contrast between Judas and the eleven. There are two kinds of branches, Judas type and eleven type. Not Christians who don't bear fruit. MacArthur said that would violate everything about Scripture's teaching on salvation. So every branch in me, that has given a lot of believers a lot of concern. In me? You can cut off some of the in me people? MacArthur goes on to say, let's not force a whole theology of the use of a preposition into Jesus' sentence. Let's not give a whole Pauline theology of being in Christ into Jesus' use of that preposition in me. It is, as I said, right after the upper room where Judas had left to betray Jesus, did he not appear to be in? Didn't he look like he was in? This is what Jesus, mean, Jesus means by every branch in me. Jesus meant John six sixty four. There are some of you, Jesus said, who do not believe for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. Judas was never in Jesus. And Jesus knew it from the beginning. So when Jesus says in me, he's not referring to those who were once Christians and then became lost. He's referring to those who, like Judas, appear to be in Christ, but they were never his. John wants us to know that there's no such thing as being truly in and then being some, somewhere later lost. That's why he writes John 3 and John 6 and John 10. Literally some of the most precious passages about the security of the believer in Christ where Jesus says things in John 10 like, nobody can snatch my sheep from my hand. Nobody can take them from my Father. I and my Father are one. That's triple security. But there are two kinds of branches, aren't there? Judas-like and eleven-like. No fruit and those truly in the vine who are fruit bearing. So as we think about those who feel no need for Christ, think about your life. Think about your Lord. He said that a good tree cannot bring forth the bad fruit, and the bad cannot bring forth the good. And Jesus said in Matthew 7, you will know them by their fruits. It took a while for Judas's fruit to get exposed, didn't it? Jesus said in Matthew 12, either make the tree good and its fruit good or the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit, Matthew 12, 33. So the phrase in me does not mean that some were once Christians and then lost their salvation. It does mean things like John 6, 6, 6, John 6, 66. The verse numbers weren't inspired, but it's easy to remember that one. That's why I emphasize it. Because it tells us in that verse that some people are called disciples and then they leave Jesus. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. 
That's what we're talking about. The father pruning and cutting off in verse 6, throwing into a fire and being burned. In verse 6, I believe Jesus has an Old Testament passage in mind. Ezekiel 15, it's one of the vine illustrations. When Jesus says in verse 6, the non-abiding in me branches dry and gathered and cast into a fire and burned. Those are the same themes you find in Ezekiel 15, verses 1 to 8. God said that unless fruit was born from the vine, the wood was only useful for one thing, Ezekiel 15, 1 to 8, being burned. That's what Jesus is talking about. So this leads us to our final consideration. We've just seen a a small small portrait of the all-sufficiency of Jesus. He's the true vine. He's the vine. His father's the vine dresser. He's the true and faithful Israel. He's the true and faithful son. Only in connection to him do we have any of God's blessing. Number two, we saw those who do not abide in Jesus. They see no need for the all-sufficiency of Christ as their one source of God's full blessing. Those are going to be cut off and burned. Number three, the truth about those who live upon the all-sufficiency of Jesus. If you just skim this passage, I want to show you that there are at least five marks of those who abide in Jesus. The first is in the middle of verse 2 down to verse 3. The next one is in verse 4, right in the middle and toward the end. The next one is in the middle and the end of verse 5. The next one is in verse 7 and 8. And the final is in verse 10 and 11. First, what about those who do live upon the sufficiency of Jesus? The first thing we learn about those is those who abide in Christ are already united to Him. Look at verses 2b and 3. After Jesus said, every branch that doesn't bear fruit, verse 2, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. I'm not trying to take you into a a lexicon class, but there's a play on words going on in verses 2 and 3. He takes away, ari, he prunes it, katharai. You are already clean, katharoi. They're hearing Jesus say this. He takes you away. A play on words. He cleanses you, Catharai, prunes, and verse 3, you're already clean. This is my point. Those who abide in Christ are already united to Jesus. They're already clean. That's what Jesus said. Why are they already clean? Because of the word which I have spoken to you. Jesus has already declared them to be his own. They are already resting in him by faith. They're already believing that he's the Messiah long awaited that God promised to send who soon within hours would accomplish their redemption. They don't fully understand it yet, but they're about four days away from being irrevocably convinced. When he gets up from the dead, he is the Savior who alone is the source of all God's blessing. Not only are they already united to Jesus, But I mentioned the next one's in the middle of verse 4 down to verse 5. Those who abide in Christ live in an ongoing, abiding, and fruit-bearing fellowship with Jesus. This is one of the marks of Christianity. An ongoing, abiding, and fruit-bearing fellowship with Jesus. I know it's Sunday morning and I know it's sermon mode. I feel the same temptations you do. I don't preach here every Sunday. I sit out there pretty often. And I know one of the temptations is to ignore the most obvious questions. You want to know the most obvious question from chapter 15, verse 1 to 11? You've thought about this passage a bunch of times. Many of you in here have memorized parts of this passage. What's the most obvious question? Right here, right now, are you abiding in Christ? Are you? Is your life 
receiving the nutrients of the life of the risen Jesus. Let's not play any games. You can't walk in the flesh and live in the Spirit. Are you abiding in Christ? Ten times in verses 4 through 11, Jesus uses that word abide, dwell, remain. Those who abide in Christ have an ongoing abiding and fruit bearing fellowship with Jesus. You dwell in Him. You live with Him. You make your home in Christ. You take up residence in Jesus. You feel the convicting, good, gracious work of the Holy Spirit when you, Hebrews 2, drift away from Jesus. You ask the Spirit to moor your life to Christ. You say with Paul, to live is Christ, to die is gain. You say with Paul again, it's not my life anymore. It's the life of the risen Jesus in me by faith. That's Christianity. So number three, Those who abide in Christ live upon Jesus' words and they live in His presence through prayer. I didn't read where I got number two, but that's verse 4b, 4c, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5b, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. That's why we have number two, an ongoing abiding in Jesus. We can't do anything apart from Him. Zero of spiritual value. That's why I began the sermon by repenting from all the fruit stapling I've been trying to do and we've been trying to do. Only Christ produces in us what God requires from us. Third, though, I said is those who abide in Christ live upon Jesus' words and in His presence through prayer. That's verse 7 and 8. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Here comes prayer. Ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. What a glorious promise. Pay careful attention to the conditions of the promise. Abiding in Jesus and his words abiding in us, then ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. This is not making Jesus' name in Jesus' name a lucky rabbit's foot at the end of our prayer. It's not a catch-all phrase that twists God's arm so that we get what our carnal desires want. No, it's a delighting oneself in the Lord leads to Him giving you the desires of your heart because He changes you. Prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes you. And the more you allow Jesus' words to abide in you, You're transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the more you abide in Christ, you begin to ask in Jesus' name, meaning exactly how He would ask. And He loves to do for you when you ask precisely what He would have asked. It's in that sense that we pray in Jesus' name and whatever we ask will be done for us. It's an abiding in Jesus and His words abiding in us. It's a dependence upon God in prayer, asking for the very things that our Savior would ask for if He were the one offering the prayer instead of our voice. Indeed, He's praying through us by His Spirit. We're agreeing with God according to the truth of His Word. This is fruit in the lives of those who are grafted into Jesus. We live our life in this book, and we live our life on our knees. It's a prayer-filled saturation in this book. Don't come to this thing academically. And don't be a bibliolater who comes to it as an end in itself. Stop worshiping the book. This is not the fourth member of the Trinity. This is the window through which you see the face of your Redeemer. And you take these words. If you run out of things to pray for, welcome to my grow class last week. Just flip the page. Keep praying Scripture. Meditation is filling your mind with God's truth and bringing it back to him in prayer, a two-way conversation. He speaks through his word, and you respond to what he said. This is asking in Jesus' name. This is abiding in Christ. If my words abide in you, live in you, dwell in you, they become part of who you are, not just some facts you know. 
It informs your prayer life, transforms your mind, and you live in prayer-filled dependence upon the Father. This is what abiding in Christ looks like. Did anybody model that more than Jesus? There's never been a more word-saturated man on the planet than our Savior. His favorite book to quote from was Deuteronomy. All right, I'm going to pass the mic and everybody quote every verse from Deuteronomy that you know by heart. He's a word-saturated, prayer-filled man. And he says that's what it looks like for us to abide. There's two more evidences of abiding. One is in verse 10 and one is in verse 11. Verse 10, it's fourth, those who abide in Christ live beneath the awareness of God's love. If you keep my commandments, verse 10, you will abide in my love just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. There's zero way that can be meritorious. Keeping the commandments means God will then love you. Because that's not true for Jesus, and He made it the same. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love, I mentioned that last Sunday's text, the end of John 14, is the only time in John's Gospel where Jesus says He loves the Father. Does he love the Father? Absolutely, perfectly, flawlessly. But instead of focusing on his love for the Father, he was constantly focused on the Father's love for him, which was the power to obey the Father's commandments. We obey from, not for, the Father's favor. And Jesus is saying, you want to abide in my love? There's a commandment-keeping requirement. But you know what you'll find? As you obey his commands, you give him the glory. Why? Because last week's text, he gave you the Holy Spirit to enable you to obey. You don't brag because you obeyed. You thank him that you obeyed. And guess what happens? As you depend on Christ, abide in him, the power of the Holy Spirit, obeying his commands, you become more aware of how much he loves you. Guess what that makes you want to do? obey his commands. Guess what that produces? Greater awareness of how much he loves you. Guess what that makes you want to do? Obey his commands. Guess what that produces? Greater awareness of how much he loves you. Jesus wants you to live under that fountain. And he tells you in verse 10, this is what it looks like to abide in Christ. Finally, not only do those who abide in Jesus live beneath an increasing awareness of God's love, verse 10, but verse 11, those who abide in Christ enjoy Christ's own joy. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full, filled to the top, overflowing. One commentator said, lest the constraints of the unqualified obedience mandated in verse 10, verse 9 and 10 seem gray and joyless. And let's be honest, sometimes we look at God's big book and we feel that it's a list of joyless rules. Instead of seeing verse 10, obey and know how much the Father loves Jesus insists that his own obedience to the Father is the ground of his own joy. And he promises, commentator goes on to say, those who obey him will share the same joy. Indeed, that's his very purpose in laying down such demands is that their joy may be made full. If you just skim, if you have a red letter Bible, Chapters 13, 14, 15 of John, you'll see it's pretty much all red letters. The exceptions, the black letters, if you have a red letter Bible, are questions that the disciples ask Jesus. How do we know the way? I'm the way. Show us the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus talks, they ask questions. Jesus talks, they ask questions. Guess what they don't ask him a question about? Verse 11. I'm telling you all these things because I want you to have my joy so that your joy will be made full. Your joy? Like, 
the joy that you have? Why didn't they ask him? What kind of joy are you talking about? Because though we wrongly think of him as totally joyless, Hebrews 1 says the Father anointed him with joy more than all of his companions. It's literally cumulative. All the joy that all the people of God have does not compare to the joy that the Father anointed Jesus with. And Jesus says to his followers, I'm telling you all this because I want you to get my joy. That's the benefit of abiding in Jesus. So our application, I believe, is very simple. Simple to say, supernatural to do. One and two, believe the gospel and abide in Jesus. The people who don't abide in Jesus get one promise from this text. You will be cut off and cast into the fire. That's a promise. So there's a big time incentive to abide in Jesus. What, what, what promises do, do the abiding in Jesus people get? They get fruit unto the glory of God. My father is glorified by this. They get answered prayer. They get awareness of God's love. They get the full joy of Jesus in their life. We could expand other texts and keep going and going and going. The blessings are literally endless. They're eternal the blessings of abiding in Christ. That's the second application, abide in Jesus. You can't do that unless you believe the gospel. That's our final statement. It's our biggest application. When did Jesus say these words? Thursday night. What's going to happen on Friday morning? He's going to die on the cross for our sins. Many commentators pointed out, I said that Jesus isn't given a random smattering of Proverbs. As they left the upper room and they walked through the streets of Jerusalem at nighttime and they passed by the temple, that's where I take him to be saying these statements. I'm the vine, you're the branches, abide in me. As they're passing by the temple, many commentators have pointed out, one of the early church historians, Josephus, pointed out that this temple, the temple was this huge elaborate building and overlaying the doors was this ornamental, massive gold cluster of grapes and the moonlight shining on that building late at night would have caused the glimmer of those grapes. Remember when the spies went into the promised land, they talked about how the, the land was so fruitful and so plenteous that between the pole, men would carry on poles on their shoulders these huge clusters of grapes that were so gigantic that two men could hardly carry the clusters of grapes. Over the door of the temple in Jesus' day, there was an ornamental gold cluster representing that, God's richest blessing. As they're passing the temple, Jesus looks at his people and he says, you want some big time fruit in your life? I'm the vine. Get in me. Abide in me. I'll give you the full life of God coursing into you here and hereafter. Time and eternity. You'll never run out the supply of my fullness if you'll graft your life into me. How do you do it? You got to get to Friday morning and you got to get to Sunday morning. You got to understand that in just a few precious hours, at 9 a.m. to be specific, Jesus is going to take upon himself the wrath of God for your sin and mine on the cross. And John is so specific about Jesus' death. Remember at the beginning he said he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? And John, instead of giving us the timeline, 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m., the synoptics give us that when Jesus died. You know what John gives us? At about noon. You know what happened at about noon in the Old Testament on the Passover? The sacrificial lamb's throat was slit. And the sacrifice that God required for sinners was made. And John is saying that when Jesus died on the cross at about noon, darkness covered the whole earth. Jesus was drinking down God's judgment. The only faithful true Israel, the only faithful son, the one who alone had obeyed and been the blessing of God to all the people is the very one who took the curse of God. That's what John wants you to know when Jesus died on the cross. And then John wants you to know if you'll just flip the page once or twice after he died on Friday and they laid his corpse in a borrowed tomb on Friday evening 
And Saturday was long and sorrowful, and everybody's bewildered, and disciples have a clue what to do. They go lock themselves in the room for fear that they're next on the hit list of the religious elite. On Sunday morning, some ladies come back, and they start saying extraordinary things. We saw the Lord. And then, in John chapter 20 and 21, no ladies are telling them. Jesus shows up. Jesus cooks breakfast for betrayers and deniers like, I should say deniers, not betrayers, like Peter. And he says, I'm going to restore you fully into my love. And when people like John, who wrote this gospel, and people like Peter, who saw the risen Jesus, he jumps out of a boat, he swims about 100 yards, he's soaking wet, he embraces Jesus and says, can it possibly be that you are the same one who died three days ago? When people like Peter meet the risen Jesus, guess what he did for the rest of his life? Guess what people like John did, who wrote this gospel, when they met the risen Jesus? And I mean for the rest of his life. One thing, abide in Christ. You have to believe he died and rose again to take away all your sin and make you right with God. He's the sole source of God's blessing to you. And if we believe that, that's why I repented at the beginning of the sermon. Anytime you walk in your own power, anytime you live in the flesh, anytime you drift away from Jesus, you have to hate that. You can't live there. You can't say you met the risen Jesus and be okay walking out of fellowship with him. So John just plugs into the vine and takes the nutrients of Jesus. And he gives us 11 verses at the beginning of John 15 because Jesus wants you to be totally grafted in to the vine as well. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, I do pray one simple phrase, one gigantic truth that we will abide in Jesus, the true vine. And I pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.